The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. We're going to look at Luke chapter 7, 11 through 17. For those of you who haven't been here, we are going through the Gospel of Luke on the Lord's Day. We're going one verse at a time, or really one paragraph or event at a time in this wonderful and glorious gospel. We started in Luke chapter 1. We look at the ministry of Jesus Christ. Now we're in chapter 7. And let me read verses 11 and 17 to see what the Lord Jesus has to say and to see how the Lord Jesus ministered. Verse 11 says, Soon afterwards, this was after he did an amazing miracle in Capernaum up in uh, Galilee, amazed people because he healed somebody who was at the point of death. He did it with a word and he did it from a distance. And many witnessed that miracle. So soon after that miracle, Jesus went to a city called Nain and his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. Now as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a sizable crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, Do not weep. And he came up and touched the coffin or the stretcher. And the bearers who were holding the stretcher of the dead body came to a halt. And Jesus said, young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Fear gripped them all. And they began glorifying God, saying, a great prophet has risen among us. And God has visited his people. This report concerning him went out all over Judea and in all the surrounding district. The title of the sermon for today is Jesus has power over death because that's what this account relays. This is a true story. This is true history. The Lord Jesus Christ truly did live on the earth. He walked among the people for 33 years and had a ministry, and God in his grace charged his apostles, who were eyewitnesses of all that Jesus taught and did, as they were guided by the Spirit of God, to write it down for us. And they did before they died, and what they wrote was without error. It was flawless, and it was selective, and it was exactly what God wanted us to know. And God in his grace has preserved this truth for 2,000 years for us. So that as we read it today, it's just as fresh, it's just as relevant, it's just as Binding is just as encouraging as it was when it happened 2,000 years ago. This is the scripture. This is the word of God. So these words are true. Just keep that in the forefront of your mind as you're reading this. This is the living Christ, Lord Jesus. Just before I go into the details of this passage, just to set the context for all of us to remind us of where we are in the Gospel of Luke. Luke is a long gospel, 24 chapters in your English Bible, the longest book in the New Testament. But Luke, uh, who was a companion of the Apostle Paul, 
was guided by the Spirit, but also he had a strategy in laying out this long gospel. It was thematic and purposeful. And be reminded of why he wrote this long gospel. Gospel means good news and about Jesus Christ and his teachings and his ministry. And to remind us in chapter 1, verse 3, he told us why he wrote this. We don't want to forget this. He says in chapter 1, verse 3, Luke does, as he's writing to a specific individual named Theophilus at the time, but God's intention that it would go beyond Theophilus to all people of all ages, even to us. And so Luke's purpose is, it seemed fitting for me, Luke, the man of God, it seemed fitting for me, having investigated everything carefully about Jesus Christ, his ministry, talking to eyewitnesses, the apostles, the people that knew him, the people that were there, every, uh, investigating everything carefully from the very beginning, basically, of when Jesus entered into the world. And as a result, to write it out for you, to write it all down in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that, and this is key verse 4, so that for the purpose that you may know the exact truth. The Bible doesn't just kind of get it right. Luke wrote it down knowing he was moved by the Spirit of God so that what he wrote down may be considered the exact truth about the things that you have been taught. Why did Luke write this down? I think one of the reasons Luke wrote this down is he befriended a very influential man named Theophilus who was a prestigious man, an influential man, whoever he was. And had probably heard the truth about Christianity and Jesus, and maybe was on the fence, still deciding, hadn't become a Christian yet, totally born again, and he needed more information from God's Word. Faith comes by hearing the Word of Christ. And Theophilus may not have been there yet, needed more information. And so Luke lays it out. Here it is. I'm giving you the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that you may know it as it exactly happened and thereby believe and be saved. I would argue that Luke wrote his gospel, all 24 chapters, with an evangelistic purpose. An evangelistic purpose. What does that mean? So that an unbeliever might come to know Jesus Christ personally. Have you ever heard that uh, comment or thought or proposition that, or maybe I'll put it in a question form, uh, which gospel of the four gospels is the evangelistic gospel? And you said? John. Okay. <clears throat> Wrong answer. We've been brainwashed in that for about 100 years. Somebody made it up in the early 1900s. Some theologian. And it stuck. That's contrary to what Luke is saying. I am writing out the gospel of Jesus Christ so that you might know the truth about Christ. So that you might have eternal life. John 17, 3 Jesus himself said, this is eternal life. He defines it for it. This is eternal life, that you may know the one true God. That's God the Father. And also his son, Jesus Christ. That is eternal life, knowing Jesus Christ. So that's why Luke wrote, that is his purpose. And the only way, uh, so he's got an evangelistic purpose. It's so that people might come to know Christ so that they might have eternal life, be saved, born again, adopted into the family of God, redeemed, forgiven of their sin, rescued, saved, become a Christian. That's why he wrote. And there's only one way to do that, and that is to coming to know Jesus Christ in his fullness, who he was properly. Because there are many false Christs and false views of Jesus out there. They're everywhere. Every false religion has a view of Jesus, and it is wrong. It's erroneous. 
the Bible is the only accurate record of who Jesus Christ is. So that's the blessing of it. Each week we get to come to Luke and get the record straight. This is really what happened. And only the Bible has the truth about Jesus Christ, who he is. He wasn't just a rabbi. He wasn't just a good teacher. He wasn't just an influential person or a good man or a great prophet, as we're going to see today in the text. No, he was more than that. He was the God-man. So that is our purpose as we look at just with each paragraph or incident that happened. God in his grace unveils for us the glory and the majesty of Jesus Christ. And we have an encounter that is real with him. And that's our privilege this day. So let's go ahead and look at it. I gave you, I've got a three-point outline just to kind of help you, help us walk through this narrative passage, 11 through 17. As I said, the, the, the overall theme is that Jesus has power over death. Boy, if you claim to be the Messiah, if you claim to be the Savior of the world, you better have some power. And you better have power over every enemy that is, over every enemy. So if you are the Savior of the world, you need to have power over sin and over Satan and over sickness, over hell. And if you're a true Savior, you need to have power over death. And that's what this exhibits. Jesus is qualified. Jesus has power over death. God the Father revealed, and in this passage, God the Father revealed His divine nature, God's divine nature, who was up in heaven, as Jesus revealed God the Father through, mirac through miracles and through a particular miracle here. So, by virtue of what Jesus does here, He reveals who God truly is. So, the three-point outline, if you're following along or taking notes and it helps you, verses 11 and 12 is the providence of God... We'll explain what that means. Then point number two is verse 13 through 15, the power of Christ. So the providence of God, the power of Christ. And then 16 and 17 is the purpose of miracles, the providence, the power, and the purpose. So let's just walk through this passage. Last week, Pastor Derek walked us through verses 1 through 10, where Jesus was in Capernaum, the city of Capernaum, which is at so you got Jerusalem down south, and up north you've got Galilee. And then there's the Sea of Galilee, and on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee is the city of Capernaum. Jesus was born and raised in Nazareth, which is down south of Galilee, but Jesus' headquarters, or his hub of ministry, became Capernaum on the north of the Sea of Galilee. And so that's where his head of operations was to an extent. And that's where he was in last week's sermon that we saw. Jesus was in Capernaum. He did a miracle from a distance. And it was the, where he healed uh, the centurion's servant, who was, the text says he was at a point of death. He was about to die. He was paralyzed and about to die. And Jesus healed him with a word from a distance. So Jesus had basically just healed somebody who was about to die. Maybe he had died uh, while they were waiting, but he was at the point of death and Jesus instantaneously healed this man. So Jesus has, it's already been established, Jesus has power over sickness and sickness that leads to death. And there were many there who marveled. They saw what he did, the amazing miracle there in Capernaum. He's already been doing miracles uh, for the course of almost a year because he's doing public ministry, going from town to town, teaching in synagogues, healing the sick, doing miracles, preaching and teaching, proclaiming himself as the Messiah. 
He's gaining notoriety. The word is being spread. We've already seen that in seven chapters of Luke. This report was spread throughout all of Judea and all of Galilee, so more and more people are learning about who Jesus is. Everywhere he goes, now he's got, it seems like, a crowd of people following him, a mass of people, his apostles, his disciples, and then just other followers who are unnamed, and we don't even know who they are. So wherever he moves is from crowd to crowd. And so now he's going to move from Capernaum to another town called Nain in our passage today, which means he has to go down south about 25 miles from Capernaum to this town called Nain. And he just did a miracle, so he's got all these people who are amazed by what he did. They've probably experienced miracles themselves, so he's got this massive following. They are joyful. They are exuberant. They are optimistic. They've got this prophet in their midst. Many of them don't even know who he is. They're ignorant of his true identity, but they are excited. They're following him wherever he goes. A massive crowd. And so Jesus has this entourage as he's moving down along the Sea of Galilee with this massive crowd of people who are joyous, and they just saw an amazing miracle firsthand. And they're following Jesus, not knowing where Jesus is going. Jesus knows where he's going. And he's going to go to this town here. So let's go ahead and look and pick up the events there as Jesus is walking with this crowd. Verse 11, as we look at the first point there, the providence of God. The providence of God. Jesus' ministry was three and a half years. God the Father orchestrated Jesus' three and a half year ministry. God the Father in eternity past determined the time period of Jesus' ministry. Everything that Jesus would accomplish and do before the foundation of the world. It was all predetermined by God the Father. And the Lord Jesus came from heaven as the God-man and took on a human body. He was the God-man and he had one goal in his life and that was obey the will of the Father. Whatever it is this day, whatever it is in this moment, that is all Jesus cared about. So in obedience to the Father, he healed this centurion's servant in the, in the city of Capernaum. And now God the Father wants him to do something else. And we see the evidence of the providence of God in verses 11 and 12 in terms of how Jesus conducted himself in his life. The providence of God. Verse 11, soon afterwards, soon after he did the miracle in Capernaum, so probably not many days had passed, if days at all, soon afterwards Jesus went to a city called Nain. So he leaves Capernaum and goes 25 miles and he's headed to this town. Really, it's not a city, it's a town. Small town, it still exists today. It's probably got about, I think, 2,000 people or so today. In Jesus' day, it was a small town, one of the hundreds of small towns there in Israel. It's about six miles from Nazareth where Jesus grew up, so maybe he's familiar with this town. It's an insignificant town, one of the few times ever even mentioned in the Bible but the providence of God. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a city called Nain. He, he didn't just happen to go there. God the Father wanted him to go there. And this is the evidence of the providence of God in Jesus' life. What is the providence of God? Just give me a, let me give you a definition of the providence of God because this is how Jesus conducted himself during his ministry. The providence of God, by the way, the word provide is in the word providence. So that starts your definition. Provide. God provides for his people through his providence. Providence is a good thing. God provides through providence. And providence is to be contrasted with miracles. 
God helps his people through miracles. That's direct intervention. Defying natural law. And then there's providence. God helps his people through providing for them, not using miracles in a direct manner, but through second-hand circumstances in life to work things and events and even our actions and even our sin to the good of God's people and the fulfillment of his will. So providence is to be contrasted with miracles. And Jesus is fulfilling the will of the Father first through providence, then through a miracle. But providence is God's second-hand control over all human actions and events. God's second-hand control over all human actions, including our thoughts and the decisions we make, the good, the bad, and the ugly. God has control over it all. Well, how is that possible, Pastor Cliff? I don't know. That is amazing. That is awesome. God's second-hand control over all human actions and events to affect His predetermined purpose using the free choices of people. I'm not a robot. doesn't matter what I do. I could be obedient, disobedient, whatever it is. God knows. God knew about it ahead of time. It can't undermine God's ultimate plan. It is a free choice that I made that I am responsible for, yet God is sovereign and totally in control of everything. That's his providence. God uses the free choices of people and the natural laws even that he put in place, like gravity and the curse on the earth and earthquakes and all that stuff. He uses all of that. Choices of people, the natural laws he put in place to bring it all to pass, everything. Everything happens perfectly according to his will. Because God is sovereign. He does whatever he pleases. He orchestrates all the contingencies, variables, so that all that transpires looks as though, from our point of view, that it happened naturally. When we see something amazing happen, and we look at it and go, wow, that was cool. Wow, that was lucky. Wow, that was coincidental. Oh, that's cool. Karma works. That's what the world says. Atheists might say, oh, that's chance. No, the Bible says, no, that's providence. There is no luck. There is no such a thing as chance. The word luck actually should never come out of a Bible-believing Christian's mouth. There is no luck. God is sovereignly in control of all things. Or, oh, that was fortunate. No, fortune, no. That has to do with luck as well. So that's providence. So here's God working through the normal circumstances of life to... Uh, orchestrate and oversee the ministry of Jesus Christ to do everything exactly as the Father wanted, and that's what Jesus did. Jesus always did what the Father wanted 100% of the time. Verse 11 says, Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a city called Nain, so he's traveling about 20 to 25 miles. By the way, probably with his huge, massive entourage that Jesus was traveling with, this, took, this was an entire day's journey. They probably left at o dark 30, early in the morning, and as they're moving along, this massive crowd going about 25 miles, that would have taken virtually almost all day. So they have been en route all day. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a city called Nain, and his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. So there's Jesus spearheading the way, operating in complete obedience to the Father, He's got his disciples with him, which would include, that doesn't mean the 12 apostles. The disciples means the 12 apostles and more. His disciples were with him. Disciple means learner, student. Jesus was a rabbi, teacher. 
He was master teacher. He was the principal of his school. Jesus was a school without a building. That's what that means. Disciples. His disciples. So he had his disciples. Who did that include? Well, up to this point, we've learned from Luke. His disciples, that was a motley bunch of people. It was a mixed crowd. From the faithful to the fickle. We've seen that. It includes his 12 apostles at this point, probably the 70 that he was training that were a little more committed. Those who maybe got miracles and loved it and maybe wanted another miracle. But they were his disciples. They were following. They were listening. They were taking notes. They're following him. They identified him. He is my teacher. But we also know that there were other kinds of disciples following him. Those who were superficial. Those who were shallow. Those, according to John 2, that Jesus didn't even trust. Yeah, they're my disciples. I don't trust them because I know the heart of man. It's evil. It is wicked. So he's got disciples that are fickle. He's got disciples that are completely self-centered and selfish, like the many disciples who came to him who just wanted free food at the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, and he rebuked them. So that's the crowd of disciples in his school. And they're following him. And not only does he have his disciples, it says... Um, his disciples were going along, accompanied by a large crowd. That's a massive crowd. That means a huge crowd. This could be hundreds, if not thousands of people. Can you imagine looking at that? We've seen in the news these uh, massive crowds from people from Central America coming to the border of America. This is probably what it looked like. And Jesus is in the front. He's leading the way. They don't even know what's going on. He knows exactly what's going on because he knows he has an appointment. He's going to Nain. And verse 12, so he's traveling 25 miles. They've been traveling all day long. They're about to get there. They're entering uh, the brink of the town. They see the town. It may or may not have a wall around the city. Whether it has a wall or not, we don't know. But it does have a city gate welcoming people to the town to identify it. And it says, now as he approached the gate of the city, the entrance to the city, the main conduit of the city where things come and go and where judges make decisions and uh, it's the hub of activity for the city and where people congregate. That's where they were making their logical entry point to the city of Nain. And as he approached the gate of the city, the Greek text here says, And behold, all of a sudden, pay attention. Look at this. Check this out. Now, if you have a New American Standard NIV or a couple other Bibles, it doesn't say that. If you've got a King James Bible or an ESV, they put it in there because it's in the Bible. It's very specific words to shake up the reader's interest to pay attention. Jesus is coming providentially, not coincidentally, with this massive crowd. And just as he gets to the city gate, you will never believe what happened. That's kind of the idea. That would be our idiom. Or it was amazing. You should have seen it. That's what those two little words mean. As he approached the gate of the city, behold, amazingly, a dead man was being carried out of the gate. Just as Jesus is entering, who is the resurrection and the life and the living one, the one who just basically brought another young man back to life days ago, not coincidentally, but in the sovereign providence of God. God the Father brings Jesus to this point at the exact right time. You know, Jesus is never late. God is always on time. Perfect timing. This is the providence of God. Jesus is simply operating uh, in obedience to the Father. And now as he approached the gate of the city, lo and behold, there was a dead man who was being carried out of the city gate. 
It was a funeral procession. And it wasn't, any, it wasn't just any funeral procession. This is a Jewish funeral procession, so that means something. Typically the Jews, we know this from the Old Testament, we know this from history, that when a Jewish person died, according to the Mosaic Law, they would not leave the body for a day or two days or three days before they buried it. It was unclean, and it was to be buried, usually in a tomb, immediately. So typically, if somebody died, they are buried that same day. It could very well be that this young man who died, died that same day. He died that day. Think about that. Here's Jesus, the beginning of the day. I need to go to Nain, 25 miles away. This young man may, may still have been breathing that morning when Jesus and his entourage left. It could be that he died in the morning. And then they had to rush to put the burial and the procession in order according to Jewish fashion and also according to Mosaic law. One of those passages being Numbers 19. You take the body, you wrap the body, you anoint the body, do all the other preparations, you designate certain people to deal with the body. You're not supposed to touch a dead body unless it's covered the proper way. They usually put it on the dead body was placed, not in a coffin like we have with a lid with 75 nails in it. Get that word or picture out of your mind because some English translations say coffin. It's not coffin. It's a stretcher is what it is. So the body is somewhat open, but it's wrapped. But it's like on a stretcher, and there are pallbearers who are carrying the stretcher along, and the dead body is up on that stretcher. So the body can be seen probably and is accessible at this procession. It's happening. It says, now as Jesus approached the gate, a dead man was being carried out by probably several men who were designated to carry it on a stretcher body. And he was the only son of his mother. This is sad. The only son. This Jewish mom, she had one child as far as we know. Very specific terminology. Now she loses her son and now her family line cannot be carried on. That is devastating for a faithful Jewish woman. Not only that, it says she was a widow. All the men in her life who provided for her, protected for her, cared for her probably, are now dead. Her husband died and now her only son has died. This is tragic. This is absolutely tragic. So they're having a funeral procession and she was a widow and it says, Attending the woman and the dead body was a sizable crowd, a huge crowd, a massive crowd. That is in contrast or comparison to verse 11 where it says, Jesus has a massive entourage of people coming from the north with his crowd. And here she's coming this direction with her crowd. She's at the head of the crowd. She's next to her dead son. And they're proceeding towards one another. And they meet at the gate of the city. Not coincidentally, but by God's divine providence. Exact detail where they needed to be. And the contrast between these crowds couldn't be any, any darker of a contrast. You've got Jesus who just did the miracle worker, the, the sovereign Lord, the he is the resurrection and the life. He just performed miracles. Uh, the crowd with him is optimistic, jubilant, celebratory. They're coming down. They're ready to celebrate. And they meet this crowd that is somber, that is sad, that is in grief with the mother who's leading it. She is weeping. She is sobbing. She's lost everything. That's the greatest contrast you could possibly imagine. And her situation is the worst possible scenario for a Jewish woman. And they meet in God's providence. By the way, just a couple of verses. 
So here Jesus said, is, goes to the city of Nain because he felt compelled he had to go to. In other words, Jesus decided to go to the city of Nain when he got up that morning. I am going, probably told his disciples. Okay, guys, we're going to the town of Nain. And they're like, why? Never heard of it. What's there? Well, because the way Jesus operated, an intriguing question would be, did Jesus know that during the day as he was traveling that a young man who was the only son of his mother, whose father had already died, that this young man would die while Jesus was traveling? Did Jesus know that? Was he aware of that? Did he know that precisely when he got there, he would meet the dead body and the funeral procession just as it's coming out of the city that he is purposely entering? Did Jesus know that ahead of time? Some of you might say yes. I would say I don't know. There's a lot that Jesus did not know during the course of his ministry. How do we know that? Because he said so. He said the Son of Man does not know the hour or the time of his return. When the woman with an issue of blood touched him, he turned around and said, Who touched me? It could, it could be that he was sincerely did not know. Well, I thought Jesus was God. He is God. I thought God knows everything. God does know everything. Well, I thought Jesus was the God-man. He is. Well, I thought Jesus could read thoughts. Yes, at times. And there were also times where Jesus didn't know. Well, how's that possible? Because of the incarnation. Jesus Christ agreed with the Father before creation to go down to the world that he created and to become a human being and to lower himself and to become a servant and a slave to humanity. And part of becoming a slave to humanity was his willingness to take on 100% human nature with its finite ability to know. And at the same time, Jesus never relinquished his omniscience as God. What did he do? Well, he simply agreed to trust the Father with everything, every step of the way. So is Jesus God? Yes. Is he fully God? Yes. But this is how Jesus operated. We don't know if Jesus knew that this young man was going to die, but we do know that Jesus operated uh, by simply obeying the Father every moment of the day. That's how he lived life. Uh, John chapter 4, Jesus said this, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. I live by obedience to the Father, moment by moment, breath by breath. In other words, Jesus is saying, you know what, I don't need to know what's going to happen tomorrow because I trust the Father right now. Boy, that'll get rid of your anxiety about the future. I don't need to worry about tomorrow because I trust the Father right now. That's how Jesus lived. To do the will of his Father. In John chapter 5, he says the same thing. I can do nothing on my own initiative, said Jesus. I do not seek my own will. I don't do what I want to do. I don't just... Uh, happen to make spontaneous decisions. Oh, I want to go here. I want to talk to this person. I want to spend my time this way. No. Everything Jesus did was in obedience to the Father, and it was always in keeping with the Father's will perfectly 100% of the time. Why did Jesus decide to go to the city of Nain? Because God the Father wanted him to go there. And it may very well be the only thing that Jesus knew at that time was he, maybe he prayed that morning, and the Father was leading him there. And he's just trusting the Father every step of the way, maybe not even knowing what he was going to encounter when he got there. And at every moment, the Father is revealing and unveiling everything Jesus needs to know when he needs to know it. That is called the mystery of the incarnation. And what's amazing about that is the model, insurpassable trust 
implicitly that Jesus has of the Father 100% of the time. It's unique. One more, John 6. I came down from heaven not to do my own will. Verse 38. I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of the Father. You know, for us as Christians, what does this look like? Well, we were, were commanded in Christ, uh, Corinthians to walk by faith, not by sight. I don't need to be worrying about a week from now. I just need to trust the Father right now in faith, the way Jesus did. And so that's what he did. So that is the providence of God. Let's go to the power of Christ in the next couple of verses there to pick up the story. Uh, so these two companies of people hit head on, and they are at the brink of the city, just where the city gate is. And then we see the power of Christ unveiled, moving from providence to miracles. Verse 13, when the Lord saw her, so Jesus no doubt saw this woman out in front. She's leading the procession probably, probably dressed accordingly in clothes that exhibit that. She is visibly sobbing. We know that from what Jesus says to her. So he knows clearly. This person that is dead belongs to this woman. His eye is focused. He's not paying attention to the huge, massive crowds. He's not uh, exulting necessarily in the glory that just happened yesterday at that miracle. He's trusting the Father. And his eyes, like a, a laser, zero in on this poor woman. So when the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her. We saw that in the song, God is a God of compassion. Jesus felt compassion for her. What does that mean? The Greek word, splankna, what does it mean? It means, uh, it refers to the organs in your stomach, the bowels. Literally, when Jesus saw this poor woman, he hurt in his gut for her. So this word is reserved for, it's the seed of emotions. Jesus had emotions. God has emotions. God has perfect emotions. Jesus has perfect emotions, and he has perfect emotions here, and he is hurting in his gut over this woman. He is sad for her. He is sad for her loss. He's sad because of the consequences of death. He's sad because of her loneliness, not having her husband. Everything about it, he is sad. He feels it in her gut. He literally feels her pain. This is the compassionate high priest we have who feels for his people. He can emotionally relate to them. You ever been counseling, you're trying to talk to somebody and they say, oh, you don't know. You can't relate because we haven't been through that experience. We don't feel the emotion of it. Jesus did. He was a compassionate savior. He hurt in his gut for this woman. It's a beautiful picture. Jesus, uh, this is, Jesus is like this several times in the Gospels. One, two, three, four, five other occasions where it specifically said that Jesus had compassion for someone. He had compassion for the demon-possessed man and healed him. His gut hurt for them. He saw the crowds and he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and troubled. And like sheep without a shepherd, he had compassion on the crowd. This is the sinful, fickle mob that would cry for his blood. And it says he has compassion for them. He hurt in his gut for them. This is the heart of Christ. This is our blessed Savior. This is the merciful Savior. And here Jesus is perfectly reflecting the character and the nature of our God, the true God. You ever heard anybody say that, ah, oh, the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament? 
Pretty common. Uh, the God of the Old Testament, oh, he's all about judging and holiness and wrath. And then you get to the New Testament, that's the good stuff, where God is loving and forgiving and compassionate. That's a complete distortion of the truth. God never changes. God is always the same. God has the full gamut of attributes and characteristics that perfectly reflect his glory. Wrath is one of those, and compassion and love is one of those as well. I love this verse in Exodus 34, 6 in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you know that God of wrath and holiness? Yahweh, he had many encounters with Moses. Here's one of them in Exodus 34, 6. It says, quote, Yahweh, the Old Testament God, is compassionate. He hurts in his gut for our weaknesses, for our sin, for our hurts, for our lack of provision, for our waywardness, for our insecurity. He, he cares about that at the deepest, most intimate level. God cares about you more than anybody on planet Earth. Yahweh is compassionate and merciful. You know what that means? He doesn't give us what we deserve. We deserve judgment. We deserve his wrath. He withholds that out of his grace. He is compassionate. He is merciful. He is slow to anger, abounding in faithfulness and truth. So his mercy, compassion, grace, anger, it's all tempered and perfectly harmonious with his truth. So this is our great God. This is Jesus, our blessed Savior. He felt compassion for her. If you are hurting today, Jesus sees you. He knows you. He has compassion for you. We don't even know if this lady saved. Jesus has compassion for her. Are you callous, hard-hearted, just towards humanity in general? Jesus wasn't. Soft and tender heart. The highest sensitivity of emotion towards the tragedies of the world. That's our blessed Savior. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her, and he said to her, do not weep. Stop weeping. Stop weeping. So he went up to, so they made it all the way. He went right up to uh, the funeral procession, stopped at the gate, went immediately right up to her. Can you imagine the funeral procession in this massive crowd? And they're looking, and they're seeing this huge, massive entourage of people. They don't know who they are. What in the world is going on? It may have been frightening and intimidating. People are attacking from the north. Who are these people? And there's a man out in front, and he comes right up to them. Goes right to this woman. And he just simply says to her, stop weeping. She was weeping. Stop, stop weeping. And it wasn't a rebuke. It's stop weeping. That's a command, by the way. If you were at your son's funeral, weeping, and somebody came up to you and said, stop weeping, would you be able to stop weeping? Would you want to stop weeping? Would you not be offended if they said that to you on the day of the funeral as you're next to the dead body? And the Lord Jesus says, stop weeping. Only he could do that. Why? Because Jesus never gives us a command that he doesn't give us the power to fulfill. He's about to give her a reason to stop weeping. Only he could do that. Jesus, how can you tell this dear woman, what, don't you have any compassion? Oh, you have compassion. Stop. We, I've got so much compassion. You know, I'm going to do a miracle. I am going to raise her son from the dead. This is amazing because in three and a half years of Jesus' ministry, rarely did he raise somebody from the dead. He wasn't just going around raising people from the dead. It was very rare. Three or four times in his three and a half ministry. Lazarus, this person, Jairus' daughter. That was very rare. It was very selective. This was a very precious, special moment. And God the Father wanted it done. I was thinking about this. That as far as we know, Joseph died before Jesus did his public ministry, because he's never mentioned. And Jesus could do miracles and access the power of the Father and raise people from the dead. And he never raised his own father from the dead, as far as we know. 
So this is unique. This is beautiful. Stop weeping. And Jesus came up and he touched the coffin, or touched the dead body. According to Numbers 19, the one thing you're not supposed to do is go up and touch the dead body. And Jesus shows up and touches the dead body. And he's a Jewish rabbi. Wow, you just violated publicly in front of all these witnesses the Mosaic law. What are you doing? This is totally... You don't talk to this woman. We're in the middle of a memorial service. You're in our way. Who are you? There are probably people there thinking that. How inappropriate against all protocol. What is going on? We can't minimize this scene. It's dramatic. It is very dramatic. That's why those two words there, kai idu, this is amazing. Jesus goes up and touches the dead body. He touched, literally, he touched the stretcher is what it means. Not the coffin. It didn't have a lid. A briar, literally, B-R-I-E-R, or beer, I should say, B-I-E-R. It's uh, a thing that you could, it has wheels and you carry a dead body on it and it's like a stretcher. He touches the, the beer, the stretcher, the roller, and the bearers of the dead body stopped suddenly. And Jesus said to the young dead man, young man literally, he's not a child anymore and he's not an old man. Less than 40 years old, maybe a 20 year old. And Jesus says to the dead man, Young man, I say to you, arise. Verse 15, the dead man instantly sat up. Can you imagine? What? Wow. I bet you several people were on the brink of a heart attack and they were about to die. <laughs> Talk about scary. Talk about frightening and fearful. The dead man stood up and he began to speak, which is a testimony of the fact that he truly was brought back from the dead. Well, if his body just sat up and he didn't say anything, people could say, ah, dead bodies do that all the time. That's reflexes in his body. No, he's talking. He's having a conversation. Maybe he's ready to give the eulogy for all we know. The dead man stood up and he just began talking. What an amazing scene. And get this, Jesus gave him back, which means Jesus probably went up there and extended his hand. Get, come down, young man. Maybe even grabbed the young man, brought him down, back from the life does a beautiful thing. It says, Jesus gave him back to his mother. This is exactly what uh, Elijah the prophet did in 1 Kings, where he healed through the power of God a dead young man and, and gave him back to his mother. Jesus does the same thing. Jesus came to give. John 3.16. God so loved the world. How much does he love the world? He came to give. He came to give. He came to give his very son. Here's Jesus exemplifying the epitome of God's love. He gave this son back to his mother. Yeah, this is the same Jesus who reigns on high in heaven today for us. If you know Jesus, this is your Savior and Lord. This is the same Jesus who said, I am the resurrection and the life. All judgment and power and authority has been given to me, and I will in the future raise people from the dead forever to everlasting life and to everlasting contempt. Amazing miracle, the power of Christ. Let's go on to the last point, and that's 16 through 17, and that is the purpose of this miracle. Uh, the purpose was to reveal the nature of God, the character of God. God is powerful, but God is also gracious, merciful, compassionate. He's a healer. He's the great physician. All these are true. He, he loves humanity. He loves sinners. All these are bound up in the, the purpose of this miracle. Jesus never did anything without a purpose. It was always 
perfectly in keeping with God's will, and God had a purpose for everything that ever happened. And one of the purposes of miracles in general, according to Jesus, was to verify that he indeed was the Savior of the world. He was the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, and therefore he is to be believed, he is to be obeyed, he is to be followed. Miracles are Jesus' credentials. Fear gripped, there it is, phobos, phobia, fear, that's the word. Fear gripped them all, everybody, hundreds in the crowds, both crowds, gripped with fear, particularly those who were at the funeral. And this kind of fear is used in a lot of different ways. Sometimes it's fear thinking that you're about to die, and that's probably what they thought. We are in the presence of God's power, His holiness. I am a sinner. I deserve death. Yikes. God did this. Only God can do this. We need to glorify God. We need to give God His due, and that's what they began to do. And they began glorifying God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited His people. By saying God has visited his people, they weren't, acknowledged. they weren't necessarily saying Jesus is God. They're saying the presence of God, the power of God, as in the days of Elisha and Elijah, who were fallen, sinful, finite men, they did similar miracles. They brought young men back to life. So unfortunately, they are short-sighted and shallow in their response. They don't really give Jesus his due. They don't know that he is the eternal God-man in a body. But they are acknowledging that, wow, God must be with us. Keep in mind, a lot of these people in this crowd who are saying these good things, Jesus is a great prophet. God is with us, are the same people who shake their fist before Pilate, saying, crucify him, crucify him. So their knowledge is not full, it's not complete. Verse 17, this report, this amazing miracle concerning Jesus went out all over Judea. That means all over Israel, through the networks, through the grapevine. This has been going all throughout the Gospel of Luke, every time Jesus does something amazing. So his publicity is being propagated all throughout. In the, in the crowds, the people are excited. They're believing it. They are hopeful that the kingdom of God is coming into their presence. And there's a, a rising crescendo of expectation on the part of the normal people. And at the same time, the more that the Jewish leaders hear this, they're becoming more and more jealous, more and more furious, and more and more wanting to stop Jesus and shut him down. That would be the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And we're going to see them more and more and their ire grow throughout the rest of the Gospel of Luke. This report concerning him went out all over Judea in all the surrounding district. What an amazing story, and much more could be said about our blessed Lord Jesus. It's just so refreshing to, as we go through the week, out in the world, and with the proliferation of all of the news and secular media and people we talk to, and how rarely we hear deep, comforting truth throughout the week. And what a blessing it is to come and be with God's people and go to God's Word and be refreshed with the greatest truth of all, and that is Jesus Christ our blessed Savior. If you don't know Jesus Christ personally, if you're listening out there, YouTube, outside, here in the sanctuary, and you don't know Jesus Christ personally, you are not a Christian, first of all, you know that. Your relationship with your Creator is not right. It is broken. It is severed. And the Bible says you are an enemy of God. And the only way you can become a friend of God is by embracing his Son, the blessed Savior, the God-man, Jesus Christ, who came down here, 
lived a perfect life, went to the cross, and got executed, punished for the sin of the world as a substitute for us who are sinners. And if you understand that and cry out to Jesus and ask him to save you, he will. And then you will be invited and even adopted into the family of God, given total forgiveness of sin, eternal life, and you'll be secure with the Savior forever. That is the good news. Let's go to the Father in prayer. Father, we thank you for our time together. and This great story, but not just a story, true history. God, we need these reminders of Jesus Christ, who he really is, what he truly did, because we forget so easy. Truth that we know about you is just drowned out so easily throughout the week. Through lies, half-truths, our own wrong thinking, our lack of faith, our short memories. God, with your Holy Spirit, keep reminding us of these truths from Luke in the forefront of our minds so that we can keep meditating on them. And as we're reminded, living the way the Lord Jesus is. We don't need to worry about tomorrow if we trust you today, moment by moment. God, we need your help to do that. We give you all the praise in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.